Defiant of Obstacles, Online Support Present Training. www.defiantobstaclesen.com Good morning. We are wrapping up our in-town slow cooker retreat with this session. I think we had uh, 12 periods of zazen starting Friday evening uh, through this morning. And that uh, slow cooker retreat is part of our 80-day uh, practice period that started on Friday. And we continue now, uh, especially Monday nights. We'll be studying the Genjo Koan, actualizing the fundamental point on Monday nights and through the week, and practicing together. And the way that we've been uh, and developing uh, to do this over the last few years, particularly, we also practice with uh, students through the Vine of Obstacles, people that are joining us for practice period from Sweden and Spain. Indonesia and Australia. Uh, and we all practice together. And we have the opportunity to meet face to face. One person um, mentioned this past week in a practice, me uh, practice meeting how much they appreciate. Um, not only listening to the talks, but uh, especially uh, listening to the questions afterwards. He said, "He said, uh, yeah, there's really good questions." He said, especially that woman who speaks first. So this morning I want to talk a little uh, about um, the um, preface, really, for the Genjo Koan, actualizing the fundamental point. And the Genjo Koan, written by a 13th century Zen teacher in Japan who went to China, Dogen Zenji, who's um, the founder of Soto Zen in Japan, in many ways um, probably Dogen Zen would be probably more accurate than Soto Zen uh, as a name for our school. A great deal of emphasis is put on uh, Dogen's, uh, Dogen's teaching. That's certainly been the case in, in my training. And uh, at some point, I, uh, I also got the Dogen bug. So uh, in, in addition to sitting zazen and, and working on engaging the world with this practice. Uh, for these last almost 40 years, I've been um, studying Dogen. For, um, the Genjo Koan is the first, uh, often, uh, the first chapter in uh, Dogen's masterwork called Shobo Genzo. And it's that word, uh, Shobokenzo, that 
I want to talk about uh, with you today. And not only did uh, Dogen title his uh, first chapter Shobogenzo Genjo Koan, but every single chapter of the Shobogenzo starts with that title, Shobogenzo. And then the, then the specific title. And this word Shobogenzo means the treasury of the true Dharma, I, the treasury of the true Dharma, I. And uh, this treasury of the true Dharma eye is a phrase from a Zen story that I want to focus on particularly with you. And maybe you've heard this story. Uh, it's a story in the Zen school probably uh, that um, came together probably in, in about the 900s. It's about Shakyamuni Buddha and his successor, Mahakasyapa, but it probably uh, was made up in about the uh, 9th or 10th century in China. Some years ago, we have a friend who, is a, uh, who grew up in Sri Lanka in a very uh, devout uh, Buddhist uh, family, different completely different school, the Theravada, in the Theravada uh, school of Sri Lanka. And uh, she long wanted to become a, um, a monk. But uh, when she was young in Sri Lanka, a woman could not do it because uh, even though the Buddha let women uh, ordain, the uh, ordin ordination uh, process for nuns had died out, and so she wasn't able to do it. Now, however, uh, just in the past 10 or 15 years, it's been um, reconstituted. And so that um, she actually is now a full Theravadan bhikkhuni. But she said that she heard this story as a child. <laughs> so I think that's fun. The story spread all over, including into, uh, uh, into Southern Asia. So here's the story. Shakyamuni Buddha uh, was dwelling on Vulture Peak. And it said it was uh, called Vulture Peak because of the shape of the peak somehow. Um, I, I have a friend who visited there and he said it's, it's not really a peak, it's more like a hump. So I don't know why they call it Vulture Peak. And it's also the site of the Buddha's enlightenment. And it's also where he taught the Heart Sutra. So he's dwelling there with his assembly of monks, with his community. And he comes together uh, with them one day and sits down for a talk. And he just lifts up a flower and holds up a flower, an Udambara flower. And an Udambara flower is uh, the Udambara tree, a plant, is a fig tree. And it blooms, it is said, just once every 3,000 years. So he holds up this flower that's bloomed 
this is something that's very unusual. I understand that there's cactus that actually bloom like once every hundred years or something. It's conceivable there would be a plant like this, but I don't know if the Udambara plant flowers like that, but it also, the Udambara plant has the flower inside the fruit, which I think is why they chose that, and it's a very popular um, reference in Zen literature to the Udambara flower, because the flower and the fruit are one. So the Buddha held up the Udambara flower, and everybody was silent. And only Mahakasyapa's face, it says, broke into a little smile. And the Buddha said, mm, I have treasury of the true dharma eye. <coughs> That's the Shobogen's plan. I have the treasury of the true dharma eye. The wondrous heart of nirvana. The form of no form. The subtle gate of dharma. I now transmit it to Mahakasyapa. Oh, not, not quite yet, actually. <coughs> He said, after, uh, after he said, the subtle gate of Dharma, he said, it's not established on words. It's a special transmission outside tradition. Thus, I transmit it to Mahakasyapa. So, let's, uh, let's look at this. And uh, as with all... Uh, good Zen stories, there's uh, multiple levels of meaning. Levels of meaning that involve the context of the story and also the heart of the great matter. So, let's first look at this flower business. And as we, as we sit and live our lives, as the mind quiets down, it becomes clear how we separate self and other. This actually, I think, is a very innovative development on planet Earth. You know, really, planet Earth really tried some really cool stuff. You know, let's create a living being that can separate itself from the environment. And let's see how that goes. And in some ways it's gone pretty well. You know, that, and there's, we're not alone, I don't think, human beings. I think dogs can do it. And uh, I think maybe even crows and parrots can do it. And chimpanzees can do it. So there's some group of, of us that can do that, that, this thing. Where we imagine that we're somehow separate and then there are things of the world. <coughs> Other species have been very successful without doing that. I think we have to give a nod to them. Mosquitoes and flies and cockroaches and beetles. Beetles, I guess, are the most successful species. 
And it's, of course, unclear how this is going to unfold <laughs> for us. <laughs> Al Gore says it's all going to be okay. So there's that. And what this split has allowed us to do is to view everything in the environment from a point of view of utility. Every moment of sense consciousness. We, we view whether it's a threat. Do we have to fight, flight, or freeze? We look, we, we check everything. Uh, is it something we can eat? Is it someone we can have sex with? Is it something we can use to protect ourselves in some way? Protect ourselves physically and psychologically. Everything, every little sound, even every sight and we fold it into our spiritual ego so people will think we're really cool is it something I can use is it something I should push away there's nothing wrong with this this is the basis of the success of our species and the requirement for living life in the world the purpose of Zen practice is not to somehow um, do a kind of zippy pinhead of lobotomy, which Doug reminded me of recently. Not anything about Doug. <laughs> I don't even know if that zippy pinhead thing is still being written, but there was a cartoon back many months ago. Zippy pinhead is always in the present moment, you know, because he'd had a lobotomy. So, that's really not the prescription for our practice in our lives. So we're, we're in quite a quandary, and as the mind quiets down, it becomes clearer and clearer how that unfolds. And, and even moments of quiet. The ego, that sense of separation, wants to use those. That's just, this will be peaceful. And it's, it's better than a lot of stuff. But there's still a form of utility and exploitation. So there's not peace, really. It's not perfect peace. It's not the peace that we're capable of. Provisional kind of nice thing. That's when we use the mind well. And when we use the mind not so well, then we have, you know, of course, suffering and swirling. So the Buddha came to his community, and it's important it happens in community, you know, and especially in this case. The community is always around, even when it's just a dyad or a single person in these stories, but in this case, the whole community is doing it together. The community makes it possible for Buddha to raise a flower. Mahakasyapa looked up and saw the flower beyond any sense of utility. Actually, the flower saw through Mahakasyapa, completely saw through that sense of separation and self. So it was just the flower. In the scene, just the scene. 
face and smiled. His face broke. In the Chinese, too, Jack, they have the character. They use that, that broke into a smile in the same way that we do uh, in Chinese. And so uh, it's, it's, there's the character for a broke, uh, broke little smile, I believe, is the uh, no, broke face, little smile. Literally, it's how, how it uh, rolls out, if I remember right, in Chinese. You know, so this mask, the mask of separation, the mask that separates inside and outside, that mask fell off, that mask broke. So the community in Mahakasyapa's diligent practice all fed into the possibility of this moment of turning, really open-hearted intimacy with what is, and with the Buddha. And so it's as if the Buddha and Mahakasyapa were alone together in this moment. They not only saw the flower, but they saw through each other. And this, as the Buddha said, became the fulcrum, the turning point through which the whole lineage in Zen has been handed off from person to person. 83 generations through Katagiri Roshi to me and 88 generations through uh, James Ford Roshi and many generations of working through this same point. Shobo Genzo. So Dogen's, uh, the suggestion in the text, Shobo Genzo, Treasury of the True Dharma Eye, is that this text, Genjo Koan, actualizing the fundamental point, is also the transmission of the Dharma. It's each person seeing each person clearly. And uh, just to touch on the other three or four things there that the Buddha said. No, he said, I have, and I checked also because I was curious if it actually said, I have, and it does. <laughs> I have, he said the treasury of the true Dharma I, the wondrous heart of Nirvana. I think of how, uh, I think it was just a couple weeks ago, I talked about the power of transformation in Zen. And one, one thing that uh, I think I said was that in Zen, we have the power to be born, grow old, and die and to be it completely but the talk was posted of course as the power of transformation in zen as i mentioned on the vine uh someone who uh, receives our stuff uh emailed me and said uh, told me the story about transformation in zen he said that he'd been at uh tasahara San Francisco Zen Center's monastery in 1972. And while he was uh, sitting 
during the practice period there, the winter practice period. And it had been just a few months since Suzuki Roshi, their beloved teacher, had died. And so I imagine the community was in the process of Kaigiri Roshi was there leading the practice period at Tassahara. And there was a seven-day sushin sitting about as much as in one day as we have the past couple of three days, which is what we also do in sushin. And in the middle of the sushin, uh, this fellow called it the Dragon Day. I hadn't seen that, I don't think, before, but it makes sense because the idea of a dragon in uh, mythology is that the middle, the, the dragon um, is, uh, well, no, it's the carp. <laughs> you have to have a carp first. A carp is swimming up the river and goes through the, the gate and becomes a dragon. And it's also said in Zen that you attain the way right in the middle. You attain the way midway, often before you realize it. So that afternoon of the fourth day, the middle of the sashim, the middle of the day, is like that dragon gate. It's like that fulcrum turning point. And he mentioned, not only had you know, their main teacher, Suzuki Roshi, died, Katagiri Roshi had kind of been a junior teacher there for 10 years, uh, sometimes very frustrated with this bunch of hippies. He was so frustrated sometimes, he said, and I remembered this when Tetsukan and I were talking the other day, about here, <laughs> he was so frustrated sometimes that Katagiri Roshi would go down to the creek and chant. And, uh, he would chant, I think, the refugees. But he would scream because he was so frustrated with the hippies. So, uh, and he would get it out and then drag himself up to try to teach these hippie people again, he would say. So in the middle of the middle of the Sashin, Katagiri Roshi gave a little talk in Zazen, a very simple talk. He said, Zazen has no effect. <laughs> this is great. And probably he said, Zazen anyway has no effect. <laughs> That's my Katagiri imitation. He liked to say it anyway. And then uh, the fellow who wrote in, uh, wrote an email, said that uh, he let that sink in for a moment. And then he said, Zazen has no sign of an effect. So it's a direct assault on this utilitarian mind wants to use everything for its purposes, for an effect. It's the source of our suffering. So the Buddha says, I have the wondrous heart of nirvana. That wondrous heart of nirvana is what becomes obvious when we drop our incessant gobbling up of our world for our own selfish purposes.
sound of the train just be the sound of the train. So the Buddha said, Shobo Genzo, I have the eye treasury of the truth, the wondrous heart of Nirvana, the form of no form, because it's kind of a mystery how it's groundless, it's ungraspable, and yet something's happening. And this is a subtle gate, this subtle Dharma gate. But Maha Kasyapa saw it, and he had a little smile. Now he didn't do cartwheels and throw himself on the floor and jump up and down. It's just a little smile. I think of uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, well-known now uh, Zen master who's recovering from a stroke, apparently doing pretty well. I, I had the opportunity to study a little with him in the 80s, before he was famous. And uh, he was just getting famous, though. And uh, one, one day, we, he likes to do walking meditation. So we were out in these beautiful fields in France with um, sunflowers, huge fields of sunflowers in July. And we're walking along and he stops and have us make a circle. And he said, um, his instructions for doing meditation and walking meditation was that you have a half smile. That's one of the details that of practice, yes, that he was uh, very interested in, this uh, half smile. So he said, and just like us, we go around and adjust posture, but Thich Nhat Hanh adjusted smiles. <laughs> he was like, um, Americans smile too much. No, it's not like, you know, it's just a little smile, just a little smile. Just smile a little. <laughs> All right, let's walk. That's Mahakasyapa's smile. And you see that Buddha figures almost always have that little smile. So that experience of seeing the flower becomes the basis of practice. It's not the end of the road, but it becomes the basis of our practice. And in the Genjo Koan, uh, it's uh, the first chapter in the Shobogenzo and, and uh, often the most, probably the most famous, well-read piece of Dogen because he covers so many topics. He talks about delusion and enlightenment. He talks about the self and dropping body and mind. He talks about Buddha, the ordinary person. He talks about birth and death, wholeheartedness relationship and the environment. All these things being weaved together. It's actually written as a letter to a lay person in Kyushu. We don't know anything about this person. And Dogen rewrote this uh, just before he died. Oh. 
And so, from that perspective, from the perspective of really seeing the flower, then we're called to light up one corner of the world. Light up one corner of the world. To practice that enlightenment in our relationships and in the world of things around us. How can we make this Zafu and Zabaton? How can we light up this Zafu and Zabaton? Suzuki Roshi, I see, said about this light up one corner of the world practice. He said, it's like you become a person with an umbrella and you want to hold it over everybody, protecting them from sun and rain. This is very much in the spirit of the Genjo Koan. Dogen ends the piece with this powerful injunction to us. He said, the wind of the Buddha Dharma, and the wind of the Buddha Dharma, of course, is our practice. It's not some kind of Buddha Dharma somewhere else that's going to descend on us and do something for us. The wind of the Buddha Dharma makes manifest the great earth's goldenness, which is shining in the corner of the world, and ripens the sweet milk of the long river. Same spirit, I think of uh, another of my teachers, Tankin Harada Roshi, uh, who's a very old man now. I trained with him at Bukokuji in Japan. And um, he, uh, when he met his teacher, uh, Dian Harada uh, Roshi, who is also in our lineage now, um, he uh, told him uh, when Harada Roshi asked him, What's your intention for practice? He said, I want to be a chair. Harada Roshi's like, that's pretty good. You can come in. <laughs> you know? You get that? I want to be a chair. I want to support all living beings. It's not like I want to be the big shot sitting in the chair. I want to be the chair. For an 18-year-old, that's pretty good. For an 80-year-old, that'd be pretty good, I think. How can I support all living beings? And so, in our Zen training and working community, it's much about that. This little room like this becomes the experimental laboratory in which we can not only see the flower, but how we can also light up one corner of the world. So in detail because that sense of separation likes it a little fuzzy <laughs> it doesn't want to be so thoroughly illuminated because then it's game is up so we cut through the fuzziness someone yesterday uh, mentioned uh, that it's like the mind scrolling through Facebook you know with the phone. It's that kind of little, little lulling, fuzzy mind, which is a dodge from the vivid clarity of the moment. So lots of stuff in Zen practice is aimed at helping us 
Let go of that fuzzy mind. Wake up to the details of our life, to pay attention. How was the cushion when you arrived? Leave it in the same place. Exactly. What's needed in the situation right now? Being the person that can meet that situation and lift it up. This is something that we train in and has to practice, at least traditionally, in the way that uh, Katagiri Roshi trained me. There's a job, for instance, called, uh, it's like the attendant, teacher's attendant. And so, and the job of the teacher's attendant is to anticipate whatever is going to be needed in the situation. And so, Incense is needed. The incense is already lit and there, so that when the teacher's hand comes out, the incense is there. If in Japan, the teacher sits down and puts the foot out, knowing what kind of sock to put on the foot, basically two possibilities. One doesn't have toes, and one has toes. Are you going out, or are you staying in? If it's time for tea, what would he or she like? There it is. Katagiri Roshi would sometimes like Folgers with like three tables, instant Folgers, three tablespoons of uh, Folgers coffee with about uh, a quarter cup of honey in it in the afternoon. No. <laughs> I'm always like, I have much better taste than that, but if you want it, uh, here it is. And mostly being his attendant like that, he didn't say anything. Once in a while, he'd say something that was something that I'd missed. He would point out. But mostly, he didn't say anything. It was he just lived his life. If I missed something, usually there wasn't a second to to make up for it. He would just do it. And there wasn't any time to ask because asking was already. The horse already left the barn. You know? So in that practice, you pay attention to the detail. Anticipate what's needed. Be the chair. Be the umbrella. And gradually we'll probably build in some of these kinds of practices. But for most, most of us, now it's take care of your cushion. Take care of your practice. Some of Thich Nhat Hanh's early students, I, I know a couple that visited him when he was in the Hermitage, living in southern France. As you may know his story, he, um, he was a Vietnamese monk who who um, tried to light one corner of the world in Vietnam and didn't take sides. So when he came to the United States to do a speaking tour, encouraging us not to go there and kill people, both the Viet Cong and the South Vietnamese put out uh, contracts on his life so he couldn't go back. The United States would not grant him a passport because he was saying stuff like we shouldn't kill people. And uh, so France, 
uh, did allow him to come. And, and he, for almost 20 years, just lived quietly in a little hermitage in, in southern France. Towards the end of this period, uh, a couple of people I know went and uh, started uh, practicing again. But they noticed, he, and he was there for years with uh, his right-hand person, Sister Fong, who's still there. I think she has a different name now. But, um, and she was like his attendant. And um, my friends were like, you know, why don't you let us do something? And he said, well, I think he said something like, you know, you misunderstand the situation. It's not that I would have let you. He said, you don't know how to work. She knows how to work. That's why she works. <laughs> you don't know how. So you watch. And maybe sometime. Like, you can, you know, wash the dishes in a few weeks. But right now, you know, you don't know how yet. So. <laughs> they stayed. I think he let them wash the dishes. <laughs> Dick Han has a reputation that because he emphasizes breathing and smiling, eating tangerines, mindful and things like that, and he's very gifted at um, expressing his dharma in ways that are easily digestible. He has a reputation for being a very nice guy, but when you're close to him, it's, he's not so he's tough. That's <laughs> actually a very tough teacher. Very used to it. Seeing the flower and then unpacking the flower, bringing flowers throughout life. That's what our practice is about. Lighting up one corner of the world. You don't have to be a big shopper. If you're in a situation where you can be Bernie Sanders, be Bernie Sanders. <laughs> but if what you can do is say good morning to someone on the elevator, just have a nice moment together. That's wonderful. How we say good morning to our children, our co-workers. Or just fluff your cushion. Also for your cushion, all things in the world, your shoes, your coat. Take, taking care of your life in a way that shows the light, that, that shows the Shobo Genzo. It's very important. I think particularly at this time, there's a, so much coarseness and meanness in the public discussion that um, practitioners you know, find another way. Shine one corner of the world. Comments or questions, please.
my recollection on this is um, Judy knew she created more a lot. Um, and she was getting that sense of transcendence. Um, so I could see the parallel. But also, uh, it raises a question. For sure, and you know, so within that large range of things of uh, how we use our sense data um, for our own purposes, there is that you know the aesthetic dimension. It also points to there's nothing wrong with it. It's wonderful. You know, we have a you know, the aesthetic dimension here, cushion screens, and probably some aesthetics, like the Buddha holding up the flower, you know, are more inclined, uh, they, they help us see something beyond that sense of utility, but they are aesthetics and beauty and art is also part of that world of utility. And I think in art, my limited experience, there is, especially in art and other activities as well, of course, there is that moment where you can completely let go of utility. And, you know, if you see a Enso, for instance, the big circle, and think of Harada Shodoroshi's Enso's, there's, they, they strike a chord that seems to be beyond the aesthetic. So there is that possibility. And it's why art and aesthetics are often cultivated in Dharma practice. But we can also get a little sidetracked and the art can become part of the ego. You know, and uh, the writing or picture or whatever can be used instead to support a sense of separation. It's not bad. But it's not exactly what the Buddha's pointing to. <clears throat> what else? So I want to make sure that that aesthetic dimension doesn't become part of it for itself. <clears throat> That's a good question. By paying attention to the detail and including the detail of our heart and mind by staying alive and awake in it. Because it hasn't made us reach far enough if we didn't pay attention to detail. Then it becomes all about detail. Right. Right. Yeah, we're doomed. (laughs) 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 We are, and it's not bad. That's what we do. So there is, in, in the Genjo Koan, you'll see, you know, there is this the self extending itself to the 10,000 things is delusion. It's not bad. 10,000 things advancing and confirming the self is realization. There are those two basic modes of being. So we fall down. We mess up. We become confused. We 
support the form, for instance, for the sake of the form itself, and miss the living vitality of it, it happens again and again. And so, then we bump our head into the wall. So, we're always falling down and getting up. Okay. I appreciated your emphasis on taking care of things, and it's the first time that I've heard you speak of what you said. Perhaps because I've only had hearing this. Um, it seems to me that taking care of all things is to understand that we need to understand that all things take care of us. The only way to take care of something properly is to understand it. And it also seems to me to be true when you're dealing with other people as well as dealing with things. And if I take the time to understand the other Allowing the pause, allowing that uh, moment in a, in a meeting where we can really see each other, really be with each other. <clears throat> I like what you said about taking care of things. I imagine you're talking about taking care of sick people, for one thing, from what I know about you. But it's the same kind of thing I was talking about with taking care of Katagiri Roshi. It's the same kind of thing taking care of your cushion. And that is you don't really notice the detail until you're really engaged in it. Anything else? Thank you for your attention and concentration during the sitting that we've had these last few days. I look forward to the practice. Thank you. Thank you.